0: This is JAMDA On The Go, your review of the content featured in JAMDA, the research-focused monthly journal of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. This podcast episode is sponsored by Avenir Pharmaceuticals. The content in this episode was not developed or endorsed by Avenir Pharmaceuticals. And now here's our host of Jamda On The Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg.
1: Welcome to JAMDA On The Go for June 2022. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast. Most of the June issue of JAMDA is about research on medication use in older persons. Therefore, drawing from that issue, we will focus today on drug prescribing dilemmas in geriatric medicine. And let me thank the editors for choosing this important topic that is often so critical in the population we serve. How do we choose appropriate medication? while avoiding unnecessary or harmful medication when there's often a lack of clear guidance. So today, we'll be speaking as usual with JAMDA co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Phil Sloan, and associate editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. Dr. Sloan and Brown are both faculty in family medicine and geriatrics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. In addition, today, I'm delighted to welcome a special guest, Dr. Joshua Nisnik, a clinical pharmacist and faculty member in the UNC's Division of Geriatric Medicine. So uh, hi, Phil, Mallory, and Josh.
2: Hi, glad to be here.
1: Hi, thanks, Carl.
3: Yeah, so great to be here, thank you.
1: All right, so let's start with the lead editorial for the June issue. Dr. Sloan and Nisnik, you guys co-wrote that editorial and entitled it, The Ambiguous Reality of Prescribing in Geriatric Practice. And in it, you state that medical care providers face a lot more uncertainty when it comes to medication prescribing for older adults than for a younger population. So what are some of the reasons for
2: this? Well, for one thing, uh, we have very limited research on older persons, particularly long-term care residents. This means that guidelines and recommendations are extrapolated from limited evidence and largely consist of expert opinion, which is, we all know that's just grade C evidence. <laughs> Add to that the fact that older patients have extraordinary physiological, functional, and prognostic diversity, including, you know, multi-morbidity patterns. So the result is that disease-focused guidelines, protocols, and algorithms are far less useful in older persons than in younger populations. And then on the other hand, what we decide often matters more in older persons than younger ones because older patients are more likely to suffer adverse consequences from both action and inaction. And the result
3: is often a, a lack of clarity about the best thing to do for an individual patient. And, and frankly, guidelines and regulatory initiatives, while well-meaning, can actually muddy decision-making by implying that what's generally good for most older populations is always good for the patient in front of you.
1: Right. That's a great point. And it's kind of like some of the regular guidelines, like, you know, what kind of hemoglobin A1C are you shooting for that really does not necessarily uh, uh, mean you're doing a good job in the population we're looking after. So uh, in the editorial, you discuss four particular areas where prescribing dilemmas often occur. Could you please go over those for our
2: listeners? Sure. We talked about behavioral expressions in persons with dementia. We talked about medication choice in older persons with chronic pain, uh, whether to prescribe antibiotics, and if so, how much and which ones, and then also the whole issue of de-prescribing.
3: And and all these are growing areas of research where the evidence is not yet solid enough to provide clear guidance. And given the challenges of conducting research in medically complex older patients, particularly nursing home residents, Um, it's it's possible that there may never be randomized studies specific to these individuals. So the dilemma regarding what to do at the level of the individual patient is likely going to continue
2: to be a challenge. Hmm. We could talk about this for a long time, but because our time is limited, and since this month's JAMDA has particularly relevant research papers on two of these topics, how about if we focus today's discussion on decision-making around behavioral symptoms and dementia? and suspected infections in nursing home residents. Sure,
1: and I'm sure that for many of our listeners, that's, uh, that's just uh, all in a day's work. So that's very, highly relevant. So we'll start with the first topic then, prescribing drugs for behavioral expressions in persons with dementia. Uh, does someone have a recent case we could discuss that would illustrate that?
4: Sure, I do. So an 87-year-old patient of mine with moderate cognitive impairment, who I'll refer to as Mrs. T, Um, After she fell and she fractured her hip at home, she went to our nursing home for rehabilitation. Unfortunately, she didn't rehab well, so between her physical and her cognitive impairment, the decision was made for her to become a long-stay nursing home resident. The longer she stayed in the nursing home, the more depressed she seemed to become, crying regularly and remaining disengaged, even when she was urged to participate. Her husband continued to visit twice daily, but this did not change her mood at all. She was first started on a lotus of sertraline, which over time was titrated all the way up to 200 milligrams, at which point she was no longer as tearful, but remained quite unengaged. Bupropion was started as an adjunct, but she became more agitated, so this was stopped. Even several months after stopping that bupropion, Mrs. T remained agitated. She hit staff, and she spit at other residents while she was eating. The team's nurse practitioner suggested a trial of alprazolam and prescribed it as a PRN for aggression. After her third dose, Mrs. T had a fall, and so a family meeting was convened to discuss what to do. The resident's daughter expressed concern that Mrs. T was still intermittently tearful, depressed, and agitated, and asked about the use of Risperdal, She really wanted her mom to try this, even after hearing about the potential risks of this medication.
1: Wow, okay, well, so that is a lot to unpack, and yet (laughs) it's also a fairly typical scenario. And uh, I mean, obviously, I think most of us are not gonna be big on PRN, Xanax. In our, in our nursing home residents, And, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking, wow, 200 milligrams of sertraline, you know, small wonder she's a little agitated. But uh, anyway, uh, let's see, Phil, what are some of the issues that uh, that resonate with you on this case?
2: Well, for one thing, you know, she had difficulty rehabbing after a hip fracture. And we have to remind ourselves that the number one risk factor for failure to rehab well after breaking a hip is cognitive impairment. Mm. So she got into the nursing home and she became depressed. And you know, depression upon entering a nursing home is sort of a normative thing, especially if you're not too cognitively impaired, you know, as she obviously wasn't. And the fact that antidepressants don't work very well in geriatric depression is you know, it's something we know, but we still prescribe them for some reason. And when there are real losses in, partic- in particular, antidepressants are not that helpful necessarily. And the third issue is the family pushing for psychotropics. Now, this is quite common, you know, staff are accustomed to and can tolerate a wider range of behavioral symptoms in many family. So family are often the ones that are pushing for that. And frankly, I've seen the ads on TV. So um, there's just a lot of factors coming together. And then, um, you know, that has to do with, you know, the recent trend to add antipsychotics to antidepressants, you know, this is just promoted so much in the mainstream media, and I'd be very interested in Josh's opinion about kind of when that's helpful and when it isn't.
1: Yeah, and obviously, I mean, it's even FDA approved uh, to use uh, certain of these antipsychotics as uh, an adjuvant for uh Uh, for treatment resistant depression. So Josh is a geriatric pharmacist. What thoughts do you have about the course of this case and what might you advise if you were the consultant pharmacist here?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's really challenging and I I think this is a perfect example that really highlights the prescribing dilemma for for this population. Um, We know that there are medications out there that are effective in managing these types of symptoms, but at what cost? And here we have two completely opposing viewpoints. We have the regulatory guidance for the nursing home that advocates you know, against using antipsychotics when possible. And then we have a family member who is reasonably very upset by the reality of their, their mother's symptoms and is desperately looking for a solution there. Um, so I think in this case, it really comes down to a shared discussion about goals of care. As healthcare providers, we sometimes assume that our prescribing rationale aligns with what matters most to families, but I don't know that that's always the case. Um, In this case, the healthcare team is most concerned about avoiding the risks associated with antipsychotic use, which might include increased risk of falls, cerebral vascular events, mortality, and potentially even worsening cognitive decline. Um, But it's clear that the daughter's top priority is symptom management, regardless of those risks. And so at the end of the day, I think if the behavioral symptoms are detracting from this patient's quality of life more than the potential side effects of the medication would, then it it might be worth a trial.
1: Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. And I, I mean, obviously there's a lot of different things that could be tried in this situation. It seems like you know before invoking an antipsychotic in the absence of psychotic symptoms, uh, maybe a, a change in antidepressants could be considered, uh, uh, or, or a whole variety of things. So, uh, but psychotropic medications, and especially the antipsychotics, are a perennial source of drama in U.S. nursing homes. I mean, if this if this patient were living at home, there'd be no problem, you know, trying medication uh, of a variety of types, uh, you know, without having the the regulatory scrutiny and so on. Um, but in any event, this month's JAMDA has several papers on psychotropics in geriatric medicine, and what do they say that might relate to these issues?
4: One very interesting paper discusses the unintended consequences of the push to reduce antipsychotic prescribing in nursing homes. Interesting. Hmm. The paper is from Ontario, Canada, where nursing homes have had to address a similar mandate to reduce antipsychotics, like what we've had here in the United States. The database included all nursing home residents in the province, about 70,000 persons. And the research looked at trends from 2010 before the policy was implemented until the end of 2019, which is nice because it was before COVID. The study confirmed two things the clinicians have been concerned about all along. The first is that in these data, the general decline in antipsychotics was accompanied by a steep rise in anticonvulsants and a moderate rise in antidepressant use. In addition, they found the number of residents diagnosed as having delusions increased from around 3.5% in 2010 to 10.2% in 2019. The investigators noted, however, that there are challenges in determining cause and effect. For example, much of the increase in anticonvulsants involved gabapentin, which could be construed as prescribed for pain rather than behavioral symptoms. I, for one, have never used Gabapentin for behavioral symptoms, but have frequently utilized it for its pain effects. Additionally, the increased coding of delusions could be viewed as an indicator of improved documentation of behavioral symptoms that were already there. So the glass can be half empty or it can be half full, depending on your interpretation. <laughs>
1: right. Right. Great points, Mallory. So again, this really underscores the fact that oftentimes prescribing for older adults is really picking the lesser of evils. And policies and broad consensus criteria like these that kind of propose a one-size-fits-all approach make an assumption that the risks of using antipsychotics outweighs the potential benefits and also the risks of other alternative treatment options. I think some of the advocacy community truly believe that Antipsychotics should never be used in nursing home residents, that they're basically poison, and that we prescribers and the facilities are just trying to chemically restrain our patients. The kind of pejorative language they use, you know, it's always drugging people. And they don't seem to understand that at least most of us, most people I know, uh, use these medications very judiciously and really to alleviate suffering, not just to snow somebody. And, you know, anyone that's had a relative who's had severe distress from psychotic symptoms related to to, uh, dementia um, would be able to say. I I mean, they would welcome anything that would help, even if it has some dangers to it. So anyway, just to shift prescribing from one drug class to another that probably has a lesser or different side effect profile and maybe even less evidence of efficacy uh, really seems like a lateral move that may check a box, but probably doesn't improve the quality of care or, or give our, our patients the relief that we want to give them. So I think this piece also highlights the importance of evaluating not just clinical measures, but also prescribing as study outcomes, particularly when it comes to deprescribing research. And Josh, I, I think you evaluated a similar scenario in some prior work where you looked at incident prescribing of antipsychotics following discontinuation of cholinesterase inhibitors in dementia patients to see if there was like a rebound effect uh, out of concern for the emergence of behavioral symptoms. And thankfully, uh,
3: correct me if I'm wrong, but you didn't find an association. No, thankfully. Um, yeah, and that was our exact concern when we you know designed that study as we were worried about you know this reflexive prescribing of antipsychotics um, in response to deprescribing other medications that manage behavioral symptoms of dementia. So very, very similar to the scenario we're seeing here.
1: Right. It does uh, bring up the whole notion of, uh, you know, the fact that deprescribing, which I think most of us are big fans of, may have unintended consequences that we need to be on the lookout for. Uh, Phil, Mallory, any other comments on this?
2: I feel like um, we've covered this pretty well. I liked your comments. You know, we just have to realize that suffering is suffering, you know. And that's the, the main goal is to improve people's quality of life.
1: Yep. Yep. We need to use what we have in our toolbox to alleviate suffering. That's, that's a big part of what we do. So, yeah. Thank you. Uh, so, all right, let's move on to another challenging area, antibiotic decision-making. And we'll start with a different case. This is from my practice. So this patient is a 91-year-old widowed long-term nursing home resident with a history of moderate Alzheimer's disease, hypertension, stage three chronic kidney disease, osteoporosis, and chronic rate-controlled atrial fibrillation. Uh, she's on warfarin, metoprolol, lisinopril, weekly alendronate, and PRN, acetaminophen, and milk and magnesia. A year ago, she was hospitalized for urosepsis, which presented with fever, tachycardia, and delirium. At her baseline, she requires limited assistance for most of her ADLs, but she can transfer, ambulate, and feed herself independently, and she has occasional bladder incontinence. So as her attending physician, I was called one day by her nurse with a request for antibiotics. Apparently Mrs. W was demonstrating increased confusion and an unsteady gait. Her vital signs and O2 sats were at baseline and she denied urinary symptoms. However, the on-call doctor the previous night, it's always the on-call doctor, right? Uh, Had ordered a urinalysis and culture because they had called him with confusion and uh, looked like sort of unsteady gait that was new. Uh, The results of the urinalysis showed 21 to 50 white blood cells, 3 to 5 red cells, and moderate bacteria. So let me stop here and ask what issues about this case catch your attention.
4: It really is always the on-call attending, isn't it? (laughs)
0: Um,
4: Her presentation for urosepsis a year ago has to color your thinking, I, I believe, in part because, as we discussed last month, a goal is to catch infections before they turn to sepsis. And sometimes older persons just don't mount a fever until they have bacteremia. This also may be something that the nurse and or the family is thinking about.
1: Yeah, funny you should say that because later that same afternoon, I got a call from my service informing me that that her daughter was there and insisting on antibiotics. So, you know, I got on the phone, talked to her and, and, you know, to try to uh, teach her a little something about asymptomatic bacteria and all that. And um, but she said, no, this is exactly what happened every time her mom got a UTI in the three years before she moved into Shady Acres Nursing Home. And, you know, without treatment, when she first starts getting confused, it turns into sepsis. So that, uh, that sort of changed things a little. So uh, other thoughts on this?
2: Well, you know, on the other hand, without fever or dysuria, she would not meet either the McGeer or the Loeb criteria for initiating antibiotics. In the past few years, there have been at least two consensus guidelines published about when to prescribe and hold back antibiotics for suspected UTI. Both would hold off given this scenario.
1: Right, right. And that that was my inclination too. So, Dr. Nesnick, as a consulting pharmacist in a geriatric medicine program, what would you say to me if I yeah. presented this case to you?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I tend to agree with those uh, the guidelines that Phil referenced. So um, in addition, you know, in the absence of any other symptoms manifesting, I'd be hesitant to initiate any new medications. Um, I would, however, think about other potential causes of confusion, like other medications, dehydration, electrolyte abnormalities and pain management. Um, If the primary symptom of concern here is really confusion, a UTI would be one of just several rule-out diagnoses, so it could just as likely be something else and we want to give those potential causes adequate consideration as well. So I'd want to know more about the emergence of these symptoms, if there was any prior history aside from the prior urosepsis event, um, and whether any recent changes or events might also contribute here. And finally, I wonder if the, uh, the facility has an antibiotic stewardship program and whether that might be something you can point to in talking with a nurse. I understand that this month's JAMDA actually has a research paper that touches on these issues, right?
4: Yes, and it's quite interesting. This article, Feasibility of a Nursing Home Antibiotic Stewardship Intervention, was a real-world quality improvement intervention in 13 community nursing homes which embedded electronic antibiotic stewardship tools in the medical record, developed with input from a group of nurses. These tools primarily targeted nurses because of their strong influence on decision-making. They included change of condition algorithms and antibiotic follow-up decision tools, with the goal being both to reduce unnecessary prescribing and overly long prescriptions. When the low minimum criteria for starting antibiotics were not met, the materials encouraged active monitoring.
3: And what did they find?
4: Well, first of all, they found that it took several months and lots of meetings and reminders to get the nurses to begin using these tools on a regular basis. And when they looked at prescribing practices, they found a slight increase in antibiotic days among the intervention group and a larger increase in the control group. By this, I infer that the act of focusing on infections may have increased rather than decreased the tendency to want to prescribe something with that impulse counterbalanced by the educational program in the experimental group.
1: Yeah, uh, not exactly a rousing endorsement of this antibiotic stewardship program, and really, it's in line with my experience, where uh, even though we've tried to give nurses the the language to say, "Hey, you know, it's not our facility policy to even check urine studies in this situation." Uh, uh, you know, they're just uncomfortable discouraging doctors from ordering urine studies like they've been doing since the 1990s. And, you know, how many times have we had, uh, you know, oh, the patient is confused. Maybe it's an occult UTI. And then, you know, the, I mean, that's what we did in the 90s. Right. And then we would order a UA, put them on an antibiotic. And of course, most of the time the, it didn't do anything or maybe maybe they'd get C diff or something. Um, but that's that's how we used to do things. Uh, But, you know, even though I volunteered, I told the nurses, look, if the doctor pushes back, just, you know, give me a call. I'll talk to the doctor and we can see if we can uh, get them to do something else. But they're just much more comfortable just taking the order and not uh, sort of making waves there. Uh,
2: But I think we've moved the needle a little bit. (laughs) A little bit. And that's what I was going to say, that it's very hard to move the needle in established practices, especially... When we don't have really good research that applies to that particular patient and this is kind of what we're always up against you know and then sepsis and as we discussed in a previous one of these um, podcasts is a really tough thing to detect early enough so tough stuff you know Um, one thing i would add is that the time frame in this particular study was short and we know We know nothing about whether the program had strong champions in each participating nursing home, which is an essential thing for quality improvement to take hold.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and and I think, (laughs) you know. Uh, a lot of times we just take the path of, of less resistance and just go ahead and, and uh, give an order, especially because you get back a culture that's growing 100,000 colonies of E. coli or something. And, you know, people want to do something about it. And you would have been so much better off if you just hadn't gotten that urine study to begin with. But anyway, so how about the bottom line here? Prescriber hold off, what would each of you do in this
2: situation? I would like to believe that I would hold off and um, really monitor the person, you know, carefully. And, you know, um, we tend to have, you want to have standing orders um, for when somebody has a change of condition that the family knows we're doing something to hydrate, mobilize, monitor, um, you know, every, you know, eight hours at minimum. Um, I'd like to believe that might keep things um, moving in a positive direction without, Give an antibiotic. All right. Thanks. Mallory?
1: Yeah,
4: I, I agree. I think um, um half of my practice is in truly in an outpatient setting where there is no follow-up of these people in the same way. And so I, I'd like to think that I would hold off and not prescribe, um, especially because there is checks and balances in this system. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, Josh.
3: Yeah, I, I agree. I I think um you know, there's so many other potential contributing factors. And, and again, you know, if, if there hadn't been the culture, you know, would, would we react in the same way? No, we're reacting to, you know, something that we're seeing on paper rather than the patient in front of us. So I would like to think I would hold off too.
1: Right. Well, you, you academics, you know, I, I, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm just a regular frontline doc and I, I know, uh, you know, I've been named in nursing home lawsuits and, you know, and so this, when you've got a family member that's pushing that hard and says that this is exactly what she looks like when she has a UTI, I, I did, I gave her a three-day course of macro I think, and this is after talking to the daughter and saying, hey, how about if we do some, we can do some blood work and, and see if there might be something else going on and that she just wasn't having it. So yes, I caved, I, I admit it. Um, and uh, she she did clear up. I I mean I have no idea. We were sort of pushing oral hydration and whatnot too, and we we didn't do the blood work. So, um, but anyway, I, I really appreciate the the comments, and I will try to do better next time. So <laughs> we've
4: all been there.
2: <laughs> but the whole point of this was to uh, to emphasize that there isn't a right answer to these things, and oh, right. um, and you know the customer is often right. You know even yeah. when the regu- you know, when the guidelines. Say something different.
1: Yep, yep. Well, it's true. It, it's it's um, it's a case by case basis. It's person centered care. And and in this case, uh, oh, you know, you you want to first do no harm. And in this case, it doesn't appear that any harm was done with the, you know, three days of antibiotics. But um, you know, I, I didn't feel great about it. So all right, enough of that. So <laughs> I, I think uh, any any final comments before we wrap up.
3: No, I think this is a great discussion.
1: All right. Well, it's been great having you all. Uh, That's going to wrap it up for this JAMDA On The Go podcast. Under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Philip Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of associate editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, the journal formerly known as the Journal of the American Medical Directors Association. Continues to be an impactful resource in post acute and long term care and beyond. So please take a look at the whole June 2022 issue. Dr. Sloan Brown and Nisnik, thanks so much for spending your time with JAMDA on the go. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. And references for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. That's J A M D A. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for JAMDA on the go. All right, well, not surprisingly, we've discussed four topics and uh, we're ready to wrap it up. So, uh, thank you for listening to our podcast. And under the leadership of co editors in chief, Drs. Philip Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of associate editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, JAMDA, the Journal of Post Acute and Long Term Care Medicine, continues to be an impactful resource in post acute and long term care, geriatrics, and beyond. So, please take a look at the May 2022 issue. There's a lot more in it than what we just talked about. Phil and Mallory, thank you so much for spending your time with Jamda on the Go today. Thank you. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Jamda on the Go.
0: If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our learning management system at apex.paltc.org. That's apex.paltc.org. Click on the podcast and follow the link to this episode. This podcast episode is sponsored by Avenir Pharmaceuticals. The content in this episode was not developed or endorsed by Avenir Pharmaceuticals.